It's Shade at Black Girls Texting. I know y'all see my text. You better answer me back. I'm Chels Pinky, also known as the washing machine queen. I'm classically trained. Me, 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 me. It's Gwen at That's My Brat. Wow, you did us. Goodbye. Welcome, welcome to Black Girls Texting. Tea is steadily spilled in our group chat, and each week we let you in on it. I'm Chels Pinky, also known as the Washing Machine Queen. I'm Glenn at Bedstuy Brat. And I'm Shade at Black Girls Texting. And today, as you can see, we have a special guest with us. Yadon Israel's in the building. <laughs> What's good? What's good? What's good? Thank you for stopping by. Thank you. It's very easy to do so when I ain't got to leave the house. <laughs> Facts. <laughs> Factual. Um, so for folks who do not know, Yadon Israel is an educator, entrepreneur, editor, writer, and founder of Literary Swag, a cultural movement that intersects literature and fashion to make books cool, like it's literary swag. I think it's pretty self-explanatory in the name. Um, he teaches creative writing at the New School and City College and is the former editor-in-chief of Brooklyn Magazine. He has written for Avidly, The New Inquiry, Lit Hub, Poets and Writers, as well as Vanity Fair. And he hosts the Literary Swag Book Club, a Brooklyn-based subscription service and club that meets every last Wednesday of the month. And he is also a father. And we really wanted to have you on to talk about a multitude of things, but this is kind of like our Father's Day episode. And we thought that you would be the perfect fit to have this conversation. Thank you. I appreciate y'all. All the fathers y'all know. I'm, I appreciate that. I'm one that you picked. Yes. <laughs> Could have been Will Smith on here. <laughs> Could have been. He was busy. He had to do a red table talk. I, I believe it. I believe it. I believe it. Um, so, Yadon, you've said that you've always wanted to be a father. Correct? Yes. And to a daughter. Oh, you know what? Can I get, a, can I get something real quick? Yeah. yeah. All right. Hold on. Is it a props? Yeah, no. <laughs> Hold on. I'll grab it. Oh my God. I'm going to start crying if he grabs that sweet baby. Imagine. <laughs> like on the episode. <laughs> I'm really hoping that this is recording. I know it is, but I'm scared. Do you want. Can you record? Oh, too? I can't. I can't record because I'm, it's on your thing and you probably can you have. I think you could request it though, right? I don't even see an option to record. What is this? Oh. All right. So this was, so I was the president of the Black Student Union from 2010 to 2012 at Pace University. Uh -huh. And this was an, a, an, a, like, like a, when I graduated, it was an award called the You Ain't My Daddy Award <laughs> from 2012. And it was like. Uh, what does that mean? Yeah, what does that mean? So the reason why I got this award, because this is, and this is like a way to answer your question, um, is about the fact that like when I was the president of BSU, I had made it my responsibility to make sure that if people were members of the club, that they were going to class, that they were like doing what they had to do. So like if I was in the CAF, for example, during common hour, or just in, in the CAF because I didn't have class and I knew other people's schedules, I would be like, why are you in the CAF? Like go to class. So I would like chase behind people and like, if they was in the club, I basically felt like my responsibility was to make sure that they were doing what they needed to do to stay in, in school. So Wait, that's pretty cool. Like, Wait, were you, old, were you the oldest in the club? 
Nah, I wasn't the oldest. I, I, it was just the role that like, so the background of it was when I joined black, the Black Student Union at Pace, I had a adverse relationship with like other men because as a as as like as the as the president of the club and this is typically what happens with a lot of clubs and colleges is that the women women are you especially black women are the most active members so like bsu general meetings it would be like 15 black women if it's a, it's a room of you know it's a room of 20 people anywhere between 15 and 17 of them will be black women it'll be like three dudes and I understood that a part of, I wanted more dudes to come, but then I was at that age where like 1920, where I was like too proud to, to try to recruit male members, like black men. So I was like, fuck it, they don't wanna come, then fuck them. But I started to recognize that like, if I'm gonna be in a leadership role, then I can't play it the way like somebody who's not in a leadership role would. So that role, I recognize for myself demanded a lot of humility in terms of like talking to men and like, yo, dude, you should come to book club. I mean, a book club, this, you should come to BSU and we do these meetings because the first thing is, is like, if somebody like, nah, fuck out of here, why are you talking to me? Then it's like, that's a, that becomes a confrontation. Or at least that's like, all right, this nigga just violated. Now right. I can't let the nigga violate. So it turns into something. And because I didn't want those conversations to ever go that in that direction, I just avoided them altogether. But during that time, I just recognized that one of the reasons why I had an adverse relationship when BSU first started was because of everything I was doing, which was the lack of outreach. And that's typically what happens with black men in power is they feel like people should cozy up to them as opposed to feeling like it's their job to open, extend the olive branch. So I thought about it and I was like, I was 18 and I remember not wanting to join BSU because it was definitely a feeling of you got to get with our shit as opposed to like, yo, you should come and be a part of this. And so during that period, I, it was, I did a lot of like emotional work to humble myself to approach other black men to join the club. And it was the, my approach and not my humility that like I can say, got a lot of the dudes who like would put on the veneer of like, nah, I'm good. Or like, ah, yeah, I'm gonna pull up. And then they won't pull up. But I was like, yo, you should come through. And I was like very sincere about it. And it was in that sincerity that like started like real relationships with friends who I took those relationships so seriously that like, you know, when stu like the reality is, is like in a social environment, um, like a college, sometimes we forget like the, the, the reality of why we're able to stay there. So whether it be financial situations or your GPA staying a certain level so you can keep like, your, your financial aid packages and stuff like that. So because I understood that and because we were at a predominantly white school and because being at a predominantly white school means that like those communities that we create for ourselves are really why a lot of black kids do stay at these colleges. Um, and just at any college where you are away from your original friend group, whatever friend group you create in another environment, that is what you actually, that what makes, that's what makes it worth it for a lot of people. And so BSU was like more than just a club for a lot of people. It was a family. And I didn't necessarily think of myself as anyone's father. I just thought of myself as somebody who, and being a president of a club, understood that I cannot say that I'm a leader of anything if I'm not creating an environment and cultivating a certain model 
that lets people know that they're not only just welcome, but I'm like, I do, un, like I see them even when they don't necessarily think I'm paying attention. So it's like, if I'm sitting next to somebody and they're like, yo, I don't know how I'm coming back to school. I'm not, I'm not just like, oh, all right, that's fucked up. Like, I guess I'm gonna see you when I'm see you. I'm like, yo, what's good? Like, is it your GPA? Is it financial aid? Like, do you need help with fast and shit like that? And I would take, I would go that route of doing things. And so because I involve myself into people's personal lives in the capacity of like, as long as what you like, if, if there's any way I can help you stay here where you want to be, that I have the power to do, I'm going to do that. And so that turned into like people saying, yo, why are you done talking to people like they're your dad? Like he's my daddy. Cause I'd be like, yo, why are you not in class? Because it's like, I, I, we would, I would know certain realities that people had, but of course, when you're young, like we all young, you you neglect your your responsibilities because you're still navigating the fact that you're in control of your life. And so I would know certain people's real like back like background shit. Like this person has to go to class, and I know other you know I know other students like they're in a position where their GPAs is good, they can afford to miss a class or two. But the other person who wants to hang out is like, nah, nigga, you you need to go to class, or whatever. So as a way to like like model the thing that I would have like in order to be able to hold people accountable to the standard that I wanted them to have for themselves I had to live by my own model so it was like I was never cutting class anything like that like everything I did was to like model for people like yo I'm not going to be somebody who's going to expect something of you that I don't hold myself to so basically Mm -hmm. that energy was just like oh this nigga act like he's somebody's father I never really saw it like that I just really cared about the people in the club and I also thought of myself as like, if I'm going to say I'm a leader of something, it has to go beyond just the meetings. It has to go beyond just like, oh, you want to come to this 90s party? Because I just seen a lot of like college presidents who benefited from like being in charge, but they never took what I felt was a responsibility they had to the communities that that were, that they were leaders of or presidents of. So that's how, that's how I got the award. So when I graduated in December, um, the president, the vice president at the time, Cat and Porcelain, um who like in a lot of ways are groomed to become the leaders of the club which was also like in a college environment you don't groom leaders it's like whoever runs for the e-board and whoever wants to do it does the shit but i just felt like what we had created was something very um important that sustained me through college and that sustained a lot of people through college so i saw it as more of like no this is something that has to be protected Mm-hmm. And so I want to be able to cultivate people who can carry on the, 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 the standard outside of just we do meetings and we throw parties and we have events. It's like, no, this is a community that once you become a part of it, this is something you can rely on as a resource. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I was going to say, I also noticed that in you as a friend. And if ever I like overhear you or uh, like talking to someone or on the phone with someone, you're like kind of <laughs> nurturing them in a dad way. In some ways, like you know, I think you're you you like you like to offer resources to people. Um, you got a lot of wisdom that um, you impart. So yeah, mm-hmm. um, are you always that way? Like even when you were a, a yeah. So dad, so kid? back so yeah so I so I'm a middle child. I have five siblings. So I have two siblings that's older than me who are ten and twelve years older than me, and I have two siblings that are younger than me. Um, that are six and eight years younger than me. So on both sides, they're in each other's peer group. My youngest two sisters is 24 and 22. 
my oldest two siblings, my brother and my sister are four, third, mm, 40 and 42. So they're close in age. I'm dead smack dab in the middle. So in a weird way, I had like a lot of the responsibility of an older brother, but then in a weird way, I was too removed to be like, but then like I was a young, I was a, a younger brother and an older brother at the same time. And then my sister and brother, because they are the same age, they had kids around the same age. So in their twenties, they're having their kids. So I have niece and nephews and I have my little sister. So I was the person who would more or less be the babysitter, would babysit, take my little sister to free lunch to the park. So in that came, you know, a lot of responsibility. Right. And, I, and definitely like, I don't think this is a generation where I see it as much where like older siblings who are kids are left with the younger siblings. Now, like more people are primed to get babysitters. Like, even if a kid is like 30, I know kids who are 13 who have babysitters. And it was like, I was being left, I was left with my sisters as young as like six and seven and like, don't lock, don't touch the door. Don't, don't use the stove and don't like, right. And so from a young age, I learned that like responsibility was like a part of who I was. And then when I'm also held accountable for shit that goes wrong as if I'm the adult, then it's like I, I start to internalize that relationship with things in any environment. Because like if something goes wrong, I'm usually the one that goes, well, why did this happen? And why, you know, why didn't your sister eat? And it's like, I'm fucking eight. I don't know what this is, but I didn't have that language at eight. So I just, I just basically internalized like, okay, if I'm around, I'm responsible. And so I always just saw myself as not only just being responsible for myself, but being responsible for other people around me. And that had nothing to do with age so much as like, if I saw somebody was doing something they wouldn't do with, with around their parents, I would feel like, okay, if we come back and he gets in trouble, my mother's going to ask me, what did I do? Or like that someone's going to expect me to like, why didn't you tell him something? So it was like, all right, like now I'm going to be the conscious in the room because it's like, I'm more, I already know that's an expectation of me. And so it was, it was an, it became something I expected of myself. So like being a father just made sense because of the responsibility of like, someone needs to be responsible. And then it was also because like growing up around boys, like other boys that I knew didn't really, if not necessarily they didn't have the responsibility, but they didn't take the risk. They didn't take to it. Like, even if they were like older brothers, like they did a lot of the protecting side of things. Like they was like, you fuck with, you know, homie's little sister. I'm gonna get my brother and he'll come to the block, you know, fuck with my little sister. Like that was the extent <laughs> to like their version of like paternal fathering. My, my thing was more nurturing of like somebody was hurt. Like, oh, you're right, what's going on? Like, you know, if a kid is lost in the park, like I'm trying to help the kid find, like, does anyone know who their parents are? So it took on in a lot of ways, like, in a gendered element, like a lot of the ways I went about doing things would, would be considered and was considered like a maternal approach to doing things. Like I wasn't necessarily the guy you went when, you know, somebody was fucking with you because I wasn't that guy, but I was the guy that was like, you talked to after when it was like, well, how do you feel about it? And, you know, why do you feel that way? And so in that, in that, in, in that framework, I'm growing up in like Bed-Stuy, that was like the role I just played. So like people would just trust me with shit and I didn't even know them. They like, yo, watch my, what's the name while I go to the store? And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> but then I would take it serious. Like I would just really be sitting there and watching somebody's kid or watching somebody's cousin or hanging, like doing those things. And it was weird. Cause it was like, it just felt like people saw that in me 
as because I never offered. It was just something like people just looked at me and was like, "This nigga looks safe." Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, wait, you said something that was really interesting um, about this like maternal approach and asking questions about like mm -hmm. to check on the emotional state of a mm -hmm. child and. Chelsea and I are both teachers or have been teachers in um, lower school. And it's always been so interesting to me the way we approach, the, approach children as like whole beings. Right. And we're like, why did you do that? Why are you feeling this way? Let's talk mm -hmm. about it. Let's unpack it versus like, you hit her, go sit in the corner, yeah. which is how I always remember things being. Um, and I wonder if you've started to think about that in, in the ways that you're going to parent or even as you're parenting already and like the kinds of check-ins that you do with your daughter or intend to do well okay so i think a lot all right so a lot of what i do okay how do i answer this answer ask the question again because i want to make sure i'm answering your question just about like the approaching a child as a whole being with like, right complex emotions okay so i mean so that that approach literally came from like my moms and pops didn't really approach me that way or approach anybody that way. And just parents of the generation that we grew up in, in the nineties, like your emotional state was not a real state. Like it was like, as long as you're, you're clothed, you're fed and you're clean, you're good. Yeah. Probably because so, their emotional states weren't right. No. And I'm not like, I'm not, I don't think that is like stops. It starts and stops with them, but I'm just saying like, and, and so the perspective you have as a kid, you don't know that they were kids yet and you don't know what their parents were doing. You just know what it feels like for you as a child who's like angry and like there's no space or model for like, let's talk about why you're angry. It's like, you better, you better stop being angry, right? So you have all these, I have all these emotions and there's really no outlet for them. And so the, you're just dealing with all these emotions by yourself. You don't have names for these emotions. You don't understand these emotions. And all I'm really being told is like to hide them, to keep like, to, 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 to like make, you know, fix your face in the next five minutes. So you're, you're doing- like Give you something to cry about. Just give you something like, to cry about. Like girl, all what? the lines- You did, you just hit me. I'm confused. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's all the lines that you, that you get. And I know that, oh, that's what you learned, but it doesn't change the reality that like now, the thing you learned is something I have, but I don't actually have a better way to do I don't actually, this is the only way I know how to do things. Um, so I think like I grew up hitting my little sisters when they were young because it's like I'm entrusted with all the responsibility of taking care of them. And if something goes wrong, I'm gonna get an ass whooping. <laughs> and then I'm being told, don't hit your little sisters, one, because they're girls and two, because they don't, they're not your kids. But then it's like, there's very little recourse for like, what happens if they don't listen? Right. Right. So it's like I'm in this position where I'm like powerless. It's like it, it is like being a teacher in a sense because you're trusted with people's kids, and you these people, and, and then you're. It is not even just you can't hit them. It's like there's a limited, limited course of re. You have yeah. limited recourse if if a kid just decides they want to just turn up that day. Right. And so you're in a you you're feeling like all right, who do I go to when this happens? And it's like well that's that's not supposed to happen. And so it's like all these situations that are not supposed to happen are happening to you. And you're like, what the fuck do I do? So I would hit my sisters partially, you know, a lot of it because I'm frustrated because here I am like inheriting a, 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 a parenting method of like violence and like instilling fear and like doing all types of shit to like try to get you to listen. And I'm not really trying to figure, I don't have the tools and models to figure out like 
why are you doing this? Like, if I'm asking why, what the fuck are you doing? It's rhetorical. It's like, I'm, I'm really telling you to stop doing it, but I'm not seeking mm-hmm. to understand. And so as I grew up, I just recognized that like the tools that I, w- that I, that I had access to were not working. So when I was a high school junior, my sister-in-law and my, my sister-in-law got arrested. The feds came, snatched her. She ended up doing six years in the feds. And then the September, my brother got picked up by the cops for violating his parole, which he had just completed and had the signature for, but they like did definitely the colleague brought shit and just snatched him. And he was just gone from October till May. And all they kept doing was just doing what like that Khalif, like just pushing his case back and then just let him go. Um, so that whole junior year, I was like me and my sister-in-law's sister were the principal guardians for my niece and nephew. And Mm -hmm. so in that year, like junior year, I was literally like someone's parent, like not just like the babysitter weekend, you know, you work late, I'm watching them. It was like, no, like I'm waking them up. I'm putting them to bed. Like I'm helping them with their homework. And so what I started seeing, and this is the moment, this is like, I'm, answering your question, Glenn, but I'm like giving you context. So by the time I come to my answer, you get it. There was a moment when my, five, when my nephew was five, his name is Shaquan. He had this thing he liked to do when he would turn his collar up. Um, his little, he had a little leather jacket. He would turn his collar up. I didn't know that at the time. And so I thought the collar was just like a stubborn collar that would just flip up. So I kept flipping it down before he leave, before he left for school. And one day, he, like, I just kept seeing him do it and something clicked to ask him a question. And I was like, are, like, is, are you doing that to your collar? And he was like, <laughs> yeah. And I was like, why? And he was like, cause I like it. And I was like, oh, because every time I turned his collar down he never said anything. He would just flip it back up when I, and that moment it never, it like, it was the first time I was like, oh, you're your own person. Mm. And the thing I did differently in that moment was I asked him a question, whereas I was never asked a question. It was just like, turn it down. Stop doing like, why are you doing that? Stop. But it was in that moment where I kind of seen like, oh, like it never occurred to me that you have your own style decisions because you're five. But it's like, of course you have your own style decisions. You're your own person. And so from that moment, it became more about trying to pay attention to what his interests were and then asking him about his understanding of the world as opposed to like, trying to curate what his understanding of the world should be and like try to see what he understood then speak to him based on his understanding and it was like a lot of that emotional labor that i saw in it that was like oh shit like this is actually something like this is actually what i realized i I needed but didn't even have a language to ask for and it's like this is what i want to do for a kid because i realized how different during that time, that, that, that year that he was in first grade at that time, how much he like flourished as a person mm. because he knew he had a voice that somebody would listen to. That is a fucking bar. Yeah, I love that. Um, yeah, I love that. I remember a moment where my mom was like dating someone and he was like, she's so rude. She's so rude. And my mom was like, well, actually, she's not being rude. She's allowed to say how she feels. Right. And like, I always remember that moment because my mom is, you know, she's a West Indian woman. And like, I was like shocked that she stood up yeah. for me in that kind of way. Right. Um, but another thing that you, when you're speaking, you made me think about 
I know there's like a term like daddy issues, like mm-hmm. it's usually referred to women without a father figure, although there are women with fathers that I think might have daddy issues as well. Right. But I, um, I'm thinking about myself personally. My father was deported um, when I was very young. And a lot of the stories I get of him are like, oh my God, if your dad was here, like, you don't understand. You would be like spoiled Ryan. He was obsessed with you. He used to fight with, my mom would say, he used to fight with me to push the stroller. Like you, he was obsessed with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of, I hang on to those kinds of memories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the, the relationship between a daughter and a father is one that's so special and you have a daughter. Right. Um, can you talk about, you know, the, the, the thing about being a girl dad, hashtag, you know, right, right, popular, right. Um, what's special about that kind of relationship? Yeah. So one of the things I recognize, the reason why, and to, this is to connect to your question too, Glenn, about the, uh, um, the knowing I wanted to be a father. I realized from when I was 12, I wanted to have a daughter. Like it was in my mind, like I want a daughter and her name is going to be Serenity. Like that was 12 years old. I knew the name because the word serenity meant peace. And it was like, I want something in my life that I never had for myself, which was peace. And I wanted a daughter because I saw that having a daughter allowed men to be a version of themselves that they can't be around men. And so this, the nurturing side, the, 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 uh, the compassionate side, the understanding side, the patient side, like if you have a boy, and I'm not saying this is right, I'm saying this is literally like we are products of our environments and we internalize the languages that we are, have access to. I never saw myself having a boy and, and being able to be gentle with him if I, as if the same if I had a daughter. Like if I had a boy, like I would even as like internalized like misogyny, internalized patriarchal ideas, internalized like ideas of masculinity is like I would have to make him tough. And so what does that mean? It means that I have to then sort of, what is it, posture a certain toughness that I would want my son to have to protect him in the world. Whereas with a girl, it's like now I am, it's okay for me to like kiss my daughter like mm. give her like a bunch of kisses in the public and like, oh, if I kiss my son, and this is like, cause, and this is something that's interesting is because like, if, and I think every, like, I know, I know Sade and Glenn for sure, like y'all grew up in Bed-Stuy, but like there was a particular type of, especially like mid to late nineties to early two thousands, there was that sort, like you had to be tough. Like to the fact that like, even the girls in the neighborhood didn't cry, like, they was the ones that would swing on you before the dudes would. So it's like, you see this environment where everything is so tough and callous. And it's like, if I'm raising a boy in a neighborhood where to be, to be compassionate and patient and understanding, that's not going to get you read as a man. That's going to make you a target. Do I want to really raise my son with those qualities in an environment that doesn't take to those qualities? And so the only language I had for what that looked like like, if you ask me now, I, I could, of course, have a son, and I would, of course, fit now feel comfortable kissing him on the mouth and not feeling no way about it. But, like, at 12 years old, it was, like, the only way I saw that I could be the type of father I wanted to be is if I had a daughter. Because that was the only framework in which I was, like, okay, it will, it will be okay for me to be emotional. It will be okay 
Like you would understand it because I would have, a, oh, she's a girl. You, you got to take care of your little princess, whatever, right? Like, oh, she crying, pick her up. You know, you got to kiss. But, if, but like, get up, boy, what you crying about? Dang, nothing. Like, that was the whole thing. And I had a father who was a Marine. And this is a story I tend to tell a lot because it was the thing that sort of calcified in me. My own rigid masculinity was like, he would, when I, whenever I would cry, he would walk me into, into a bathroom and he would make me stand in front of a mirror and I couldn't leave the bathroom until I stopped crying. And I had to stare at my face crying and I couldn't leave. And one day, you know those days when like, you're so fucking mad that you don't even care. Like you could beat me, you can send me, no, like I'm spat, like today is the day. Like I'm just gonna like, you're just gonna have to like wash me today. And I was just not having it in terms of like, and so what he started doing at a point, cause I wouldn't stop crying was he started like punching me like in my side. And like every time he punched me, I had to get to the place in the bathroom where I couldn't leave the bathroom where no matter what he did, there was no emotion on my face. And so I'm in the bathroom for like what I, and you're a kid, you know, when you're a kid and you're not in control of your own sense of time, like it felt like an hour, but it could have been 10 minutes. But for that time, it was just like, my mom's not stepping in because that's, you know, that's his own situation. Like the mother, like you don't interfere with how I want to raise my son. Like this is you making him soft. So there was a lot of that language about like, even when my mother tried to step in, there was that element of what you what you think you're, that compassion you've given him is only going to make him weak. And so there was also a part of me that wanted to make my father proud. There was a part of me that like, liked the fact that like when you in a neighborhood and dudes are doing shit to other dudes to make them cry, part of that is the test to see who gonna cry first. So like, there's an element of that, like, when I left that bathroom, I had to bite through my lip to not, like, to not show any emotion. But after that point, like, niggas really couldn't do shit to get me to emote. And that, ironically, that lesson I learned made me safe for a lot of my childhood in Bed-Stuy. Because a lot of what dudes would do would be doing shit to get a reaction out of you. And so when they didn't get a reaction out of you, they're like, oh, all right. Like, he's cool. Like, he's, 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 he's one of us. Like, he don't. He ain't no bitch. He ain't, he ain't crying. He ain't emoting. He don't care. And so it was like, all right, now this feels good because I'm getting applauded for this. Like, oh, yeah, that's my son. Like, he don't like you, you really can't get nothing out of him. And so that became a quality that I like clung to. Like, oh, you can't get nothing out of me. And so having that, having being treated like that in ways, but then that's really not who I was. It's like there were parts of me that was still compassionate, understanding, but then it was like, it really was like, being a double agent because like if you show that side to the wrong person mm. and then they expose like yo this nigga was over here talking about his feelings and you like ah oh. <laughs> right and it's and what is the other dynamic of it is like it's once again it's not just the men right because misogyny is not just internalizing male bodies internalizing female bodies right so the women are like oh yo nigga you what you say? like get the fuck out my face right so it's like you so every, all these emotions and all these things, I'm just keeping to myself and it's getting to the place where like, it's not even like a performance anymore. It really is just who I am. So even when I'm excited, right. It's like, or like in, in high school, like a girl will call and like, you would jump up and get hype and they're like, ah, this nigga hype. And you like, can I be hype? Yes, I'm hype. <laughs> yeah, I'm hype. But to see the way y'all saying it, like you can't, you not, you can't, but in that, in the framework of the, of if your bodies were taught like male bodies to, 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 to behave, you would be like, Oh no, I can't be hype. So you would be hype. And he'd be like, ah, oh, you hype. You're like, nah, nah, fuck out of here. I don't care about this girl. And so after that, 
when you're on the phone, everything is like, what, huh? Yeah, like it's, you're, you're not, you're doing everything that's shortening any. Oh, that's what that was about. Like it's, it's all of it is like, I can't show this because one, if I show it, it shows weakness. And then two, because there is a thing amongst men where men like to fuck with other men just to see who is the, like, who is more of a man. So the person who he most the less is the most man. So it's like, if I know you like this girl and I know, like, I've never gotten you to get tight. I'm going to do something like I'm going to try to fuck with your girl or I'm going to like do something to get you to feel something. And I'm going to use that feeling to expose you. And that's going to be the thing. So you had a lot of dudes protecting their what they love by not loving it. And I mean, you shake your head, Chelsea, but it's like it's like from the time we're born, you know, this is like when, you know, young girls go on a certain trajectory. Right. And y'all learn, oh, you're a girl. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do that. And as a boy, we go on two different trajectories from young, like, and so our bodies are trained differently. So the moment in which you can inhabit joy and excitement, and that's okay, in whatever ways it may be okay, that is like, at least the way I was not just raised, but what I learned watching people and watching like the girls, the type of girls I liked didn't like those type of things. And the type of girls who liked the compassion was not the girls I liked because we live in an environment where you want to be seen as, as important. So it's like, I want to be like, the hood dudes I see, but I'm not as tough as those dudes. So I have to like, I want to approximate myself as much to what I see without being that thing that's not true to who I am. So you, you, you hopscotch, you like I hopscotch and I double dutched as much as I could to try to be two versions of myself that weren't compatible. But that's really what it was. So when it came to my daughter now, it's like, I live in the same neighborhood, but it's not the same neighborhood. Right? Like Dang. I'm not necessarily worried to take my daughter to the park and like some little girls jumping her. Mm-hmm. Like, cause right. that was like a very real situation where it's like, now you got to pull up and you can't just talk to the parents because the parents want to get their cousins. Right. And it's like, all because you're whatever. Right. So what I recognized in one of my daughter was like, I wanted to be a version of myself that I didn't think I could be with a son. And that's really what it comes down to. Like, I think every other explanation I would give is like, that's really not what it is. It's like, now that I'm thinking about it, that's what it was. It was like, I wanted to be the part of myself that I always love. I love to smile, I love to laugh. And I remember like being 19 and Kat who was in BSU came to me and she's like, you know what I've noticed? You never smile. And I was like, what are you talking about? I laugh all the time. And she was like, no, 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 I'm not talking about laughing. I'm talking about smiling. And then I went back to every picture I'd ever taken And I was like, shit, like there's no smiling in any of the photos. And so it's like, if you look back at, if I look back at my own childhood through photos, it's like, you would have swore I was like a miserable kid and I was happy. But when it came down for documenting that happiness and that joy, that doesn't exist. Wasn't that a thing? Like I remember black guys specifically would not like smile in pictures. Do y'all not remember that? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like it was like, smile in pictures i think even in general though people like don't like to smile in pictures though no but like but girls, I, like, we're all together we're smiling it's very different but like yeah. there's a little light skin smirk that was a thing that was talking 90s that was a thing 
That was, well, yeah, the light skinned guys were soft. True. Right. It, oh, like, oh, like what I'm saying. Yeah, so what, what Chelsea, what y'all will point out is like certain people can do that, but the people that can do that aren't legitimate, aren't legitimate. So it doesn't count. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like, yeah, you can do that because you're like a pretty boy. So yeah, you can, you can be soft because we don't really expect anything more of you than what you're, what you would give in, in a sense. And so it's like, there's pictures that I have of like me laughing. Like, but that's like a moment of vulnerability where you're emoting and the picture was snapped. I'm talking about when it came down to a pose. Right. There wasn't a smile. Because, and it, it took me two years to teach myself how to smile. From 19 to 21, I had to consciously work my face into smiling. What? Oh because God. the muscles in your face, if you're not used to doing something. Right. You just don't go from not doing some shit to just smiling and it looks natural like i smiled in 20 and i looked like a serial killer <laughs> like it looked like it looked like oh this dude like he he's trying this, this, to this, smile. yeah he's looked like he's going he's for it hiding something yeah <laughs> right and that's and that's really what those things are so like you know that crying like crying only do that once a year right and if you ask a lot of men the last time they they cried like men can tell you when they cry, which is an indication that they don't do it often. And yeah, I, I nigga be crying all the time. Literally. That's, I mean, that's. It's, it's so, but there are some guys that don't cry. Yeah, my, my. Oh, it's true. And and cry. and like we have conversations about that all the time because like he struggles a lot with just like his identity as a black man and the fact that he can be emotional. It's like those. Two Except can't he's not. He's mm. like doing something wrong. Or right. Something. It's like he's mm. not I hope black you don't enough. Call for so many reasons well one he's very light-skinned two he didn't grow up in like a predominantly black neighborhood doesn't have predominantly black friends and then he's emotional he's like damn i'm really I mean, not a black man yeah and that's fucked up crazy but that's right but that's like that's that whole thing about not being real black is like where do we as black american people black people who find them who are in america so it could be west Indian, it could be african it could be like Afro-Caribbean, I mean, Afro-Latino, whatever, it's like, that's a historical framework in which, like, we were not human beings. Like, white people did not see us as human. So the idea that you would be happy, the idea that you would be sad, right, it's the reason why, like, there's studies that show, like, people don't think Black people experience pain. Yes. Because black for, for Black people to experience pain would to be like, oh, that person feels, which means that person is sentient, which means that person's human. And so, so much of our survival as a culture has been predicated on being less, being sh sort of like being the magical Negro, which like communicates like we're more than human. It just shows how less than human we really are allowed to be. So there's so many emotions that aren't even allowed. And that's why I want to make it a point to say that it's not like I've seen women have more of leeway with their feelings because I grew up around women in my family who like did not cry. And if they did it, they did the shit in secret. They, it wasn't like there was some, like you would catch some like Scarlett O'Hara, like, Oh my God, the day bed, I'm a faint. It was like, like moms is whimpering over like under the Whitney Houston. And you have to put your door that your ear near the door and hear that shit. And if you knock, it's like, Oh no, I'm good, baby. What's going on? Go out. Like it's a very, everything is so buttoned up that like, it's like when, when, it, when the conversation comes down to, oh, it's like, it's a predominantly, like, the way it articulates itself is, yeah, like, I grew up in a neighborhood where that particularly was the, was the thing, but I'm smart enough to know now that it's not 
none of us want it, want to live this way. Like everybody who like every kid, like, every, like if you look at the hardest dude at, a, at in his first grade pitcher, that boy had the biggest smile on his face. He had the light in his eyes. And what it becomes is when did that smile stop? Like what happened that taught that boy or taught that little girl to stop smiling? Like what, what did that person see in their life where they saw that if I smile, I'm putting myself at risk of danger, right? Like you have Mike Tyson's um, memoir where he said like in Brownsville, they would see like a, a dude, a grown ass man walked up to Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson's playing with his pigeons, mind his fucking business. The guy sees Mike Tyson enjoying the pitches and breaks the pigeon neck in front of him and walks off, right? So it is literally like the things we learn to survive is like, there is no room for joy. There is no room for feeling here because you're surviving. You're not living, you're not thriving, you're surviving. And so in survival mode, the mindset of survival mode, which has nothing to do with the reality is that like, you don't have space to be human here. You don't have space for mistakes. And that's why, like, when it comes down to it, like, what happens when, you know, black people get, like, have mistakes? We niggas get 20 years. Even when you're perfect, you probably get 10. Like, so, so much of being emotional is about being vulnerable. And what happens when you're emotional? You do some shit you wouldn't do if you were, like, thinking or, like, composed. So, like, in an emotional state, you might say some shit because you're emotional. But that thing you might say, and I grew up in this, where somebody might have said, like, suck my dick because they were tight. And then that nigga got shot later. So you watching these moments of like people emoting and it's like that comes with a very serious price. It's like, nah, you learn like, nope, like not getting nothing out of me. So it becomes a, it becomes a, it's, it's really a survival mechanism. And I think that like, one, the thing I would add to like, not just growing up in a community, like a black community, but like a, a black community that's poor, like in terms of like, not just money, but like, the ways in which we, the resources we have access to that allow us to express our emotions. So it's like those, those ways, those forms of expression are so limited. Um, the programs in the schools don't really, there's not like all the art and music and programs are cut and underfunded. So any avenue to take that, to channel the anger and the joy and the sadness and the pain and the, and all those things are so cut off that it's like, when do you get to express these feelings? I have a question. Did you ever, um, when you were younger, envision yourself having a child or have, having a family in Bed-Stuy, like given all the things that you were noticing around you, did you ever think like, oh, like I'm gonna have a family and we're gonna live outside of this neighborhood? Nah, because one thing I did appreciate were the parents who did, the parents and the people who did provide those alternative possibilities for what like child rearing could look like. Like one of the dudes, I, like his name is Mr. Thomas. He, I used to live on Hancock. This dude, light, light-skinned brother. He had two daughters. And we never, like on the block, we really got to see them, right? So, and Sade noticed because she used to live next, she lived next door to Bernard. And Bernard's Bernard, one, of my, one of my childhood Bernard. friends. And like- his mother screaming all the time. All the time, all the time right? She would, yes. Yes, always screaming, always screaming at us. And it was for sport because she would tell us to get off the stoop and then she would ask us how we doing. Like, it was like, get off my stoop. How you doing? You good and doing a bit of school and she would go in the house. So we just learned like, oh, that's just her way of talking. But yeah, sounds about right. in terms of like the ways in which I saw like Mr. Thomas treat his daughters or this, the way Mr. Thomas moved in the neighborhood, like he was in the neighborhood, but he wasn't of it. Like you never seen him out just on his stoop doing nothing. 
like everything he did was very intentional. And so it was just like, oh shit, like to have a model and example of like, there's other ways to be. Another dude, um, his name is Mr. Country. Like he had, he had two sons, three sons, Marcus, Devin, and Jerome. And he was another dude on the block that would throw the barbecues and feed the kids. And so like, for me, it was like, I wanted to be one of those fathers who like, the kids was like, oh shit, like, yo, Mr. Country, like having a barbecue or so-and-so, like Mr. Thomas, has got, he got the football outside, let's go outside. And all the dudes who didn't really have, not necessarily fathers, because my father was like there till I was 10, but then it was like, even people who have fathers in their cribs doesn't mean they're necessarily fathering, right? They're like, right. They, they see their role in the family as like, I'm just going to make sure the bills are paid and make sure nobody gets killed. And that's my responsibility. So it was good to see other versions of fathers where it was like, okay, he's a father who's like a mechanic or like, I forgot what Mr. Country did, but he wasn't like a nine to five guy. He worked with his hands. So, so much of, he got to be, he got to be with his kids a lot more. Mm. And so even seeing like, oh shit, you can like spend your time being like a professional dad. Like you can, that, like you can just be like a father. Like I never, it was just like, oh, I never, like that was like, oh shit. Like there's another way to be a father. So for me, it was like, I wanted to be that dude in my neighborhood. Like I wanted to be the father on the block that if I like do the, like I was on the block association and, yes. but I made the block association look lit. It wasn't like, you know, like, and this was also weird. Cause it was like, we, there was the fathers, but they were, then they were like the dads. And it was like, a lot of the fathers were dads, meaning like they, they like they dressed like dads. They wore like <laughs> the Monarch Nikes. And it was like, who fuck with Monarch Nikes? And it's like, everybody wanted to be the dad that wore the uptowns to the father's day barbecue with the fit in the white t-shirt. Like that's, that's like an image of like, you wanted to be the cool dad. You wanted to be the dad that like everybody wanted to be around. You didn't want to be the dad cracking dad jokes and like, <laughs> who's this new rapper? Jay Rule? It's like, that you didn't want to be that guy. You wanted to be like, how do, like, I want to be the best version of a father in the context that I'm, that I, that I believe exists. So you want to be like me personally, I want to be like the hood black father. Like <laughs> the dude who like, I could do all this shit, but you still didn't fuck with my daughter, for example, because like, oh, no, nah, don't fuck with so-and-so's daughter because like, he gonna fuck you up. But at the same time, you still feel safe enough around me to be around me, but you knew to respect the boundary. And right. so yeah. that's my answer to your question is like, I wanted to, I didn't want to take something from me that I had growing up, which was other fathers who were generous with their time, generous with their food, generous with their homes, generous with their love. Yeah, I think that's also really interesting in thinking about where we grew up in the environments because like my block, everyone, you know, you go outside, you play and it's kids from all different upbringings. Like, I don't know what's going on when you go inside your house, but when we all come outside, we can just be kids. Mm -hmm. But there's so much happening in the background. Like I remember there was like you probably know this. So there's a crack house, like two doors down. And like, yeah, yeah, yeah. the crack kids kids be outside playing with us. Like we would all hang out. Like it wasn't like, it we wasn't anything. The kids of the crack sure. house, <laughs> the children who lived in the crack house. Um, everybody would be outside. Everybody would be playing. Everybody would just be doing whatever, being, being little kids. But like you start to pick up on things that, 
the other kid may have that you may not have or even in the way that you move like I wasn't no like real hood girl but I knew how to like move around my neighborhood right. and then people may see me and say like oh yeah you know she got her mom and her dad and this like nice life or whatever and there's just like so much going on around you as a kid that you're like you're you're absorbing but you're not you're not realizing like when that person goes inside like they got a whole different reality than what you're experiencing and it's weird because i i'm i'm harping on this point of when you were like when does that kid like stop smiling when does that kid like go from the first grade picture now we at the fifth grade picture and like he looks tight like what's going on and i wonder if it's that like within those formative years is that where the the break even starts to happen as early as like i get it in terms of like gender structure but i'm wondering is that where a lot of boys start to harden and even maybe some girls start to harden as they start to kind of realize that maybe they can't just be their free selves right but it, to your to your to your question and, and to what you said is like i don't i think it's like you're looking for like what happens when you do some free shit? Like, how is that received? Like, I remember like, you know, like if I like if I if I was upset about something, the way it was received was like I like I bought like how dare you have a mm-hmm. feeling about this? Yep. And so it's not even something that's like, it's it's just like oh shit, you learn that like your feelings are are like a, a, a liability. And if you grow up in an environment, not just an outside environment, but you come home and that's your environment too. And I'm not, and this is like the hard thing about having these conversations, honestly, because it's like, I want to be clear to not pathologize the lifestyle and the, and the, and the upbringing I had, because it was all in all, like a beautiful upbringing, giving what my parents had access to and given what they could provide under the, under the understanding that they had, they gave the best that they could give. Yes. So it's not even about like, I don't feel like I was deprived as a child nor neglected. I felt like I got the best of what was offered. But this is why, like, I always want to bring like institutional and systematic things and make them forefront is because it's like what happens like my, my mom's, for example, she like was like a product of foster care, like her father came back from like went to you talking about like historical trauma and this is how far back this goes is like my my grandfather her father my maternal grandfather went to the korean war to escape the south this motherfucker went to a war to get out That's of deep. where he came from right like you got to think about like so what experiences does he have when he comes to new york new york and meets um my maternal grandmother who's my mother's mother and she's like 19 at the time and she's a black woman who came from the South, who moved up to New York in 19. Like, what is the everyday lived experience like between these two people? And then what type of reality is it like for a young black girl in 1958, which is the year my mother was born, growing up in the 60s during assassination of Malcolm X, the assassination of Martin Luther King, the assassination of Patrice Lumumba. Like, you got to think about the fact that they're like, this is what my mother is walking up and down and seeing she's walking up and down in the sixties in Harlem where there isn't what we see now. There's literally whole spaces emptied and there's trash cans with fires. There's, there's mattresses on the bed. There's, there's people shooting up. Like 
even as a person, even if you are the best version of a parent in that environment, that's why a lot of kids kept, you know, parents kept their kids in the house because it was like, we walking down the block and there's crack vials across the street. And now your kid is asking you, what's, what's those, what's those tops? And now you're like, what the f like, even if you've created like the little inner sanctum in your crib, you know, your child has to leave the crib at some point. So that's why, like, I'm saying like, you know, for me, it's like, as much as I want to hold space for the fact that like, we weren't able to feel is like, I want to always make present and known like that these are manifestations of larger systematic structures in place that put us in positions where it's very easy to look at my moms and my pops and go, this, they, they didn't give me something as opposed to going, they couldn't give me what they didn't have. Mm -hmm. So it's not even like I wanted, I don't have that narrative like where I want to be better than my mother or better than my father. I'm, I'm going to do something different. It was like, yo, I recognize that none of us had access to this. So what I'm going to do is invest my energy into prioritizing those things that I, we never got, but we actually needed. And those, those, the ability to like, yo, let me ask my child a question instead of just assuming that that like, or like, instead of just telling this kid, you don't, you don't ask questions. I ask the questions, right? Like, or like, you know, one of the things with my daughter, who's like 15 months now is like giving her this, like, even the way I frame what she does, like, oh, she's not listening. Oh, she bad. And it's like, nah, bro, she won. She don't, she's not yes. anything she's doing is not to fucking spite you. Like she's learning the world. And I was like, even the language I give her, like, yo, how's Serene doing? Oh, she wild. And I have like, and I have to like catch myself, walk it back and go, nah, she being a 15 month old. So she's learning the world. Like even the framing of how I see her from a young age does inform the way I begin to treat her. Because if she's like in here, like she's like playing with like beans and she just throwing the beans on the floor off her plate. It's like, ah, oh, you messy and blah, blah, blah. It's like, bro, like, she's never seen a bean before. Like she likes the idea of taking a bean and dropping the shit and it's no longer there. It's like, yo, she's curious. She's exploring. And though that even having that language for, for, for what, for those actions change the way that like I see not what I'm dealing with, but who I'm dealing with. Like this is a human being that I have to figure out a way to nurture and guide, but this kid doesn't belong to me. Like this kid is right. not mine. This is not yes. my child. And that was one of the most traumatic things I would hear as a kid growing up is, oh, you're my child. Like, I don't like, like you're a possession from the time yep. you're a kid. So it's like, I wanted to model, like, what does having, what does having a child in this world look like? Well, I, do, I understand that. Although I have a child, I have a, like, I don't own a child. Mm -hmm. Like I'm responsible for this life. I don't own this life. And so yeah. all of these different things was like, okay, like I, I, was particularly interested in like that possibility because it was like this was some shit that I was most interested in like I could like I I could care less about like being like whatever like the 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 version of fatherhood where you provided where you made sure like everything was paid for but all the emotional shit was like starved mm -hmm. like you go to the best school you got the best clothes but you don't have any real relationship. You don't really know who your kid is. You know you have a kid and you know they like shit because people like shit, but you don't really know your child. So like when your child does some shit that your child would do, not being your child, right? You wouldn't even say like, oh, like, I'm at, like, well, how did you learn that? It's like, why, like, don't bring that in the house. And so one of the things, even when I talk about serenity, I may, I'm very conscious and I say my daughter, like I, I talk about her as though she's her own person, her own person. because I want to even cultivate a language where I recognize her 
every time I talk about her as, yeah, this is, yeah, like she's my daughter, but I like, I talk, I, I talk about her, I give her her name, like her name right. is like Serenity. So I talk about her as if she's like another human being in the world. And that helps me even dial it back sometimes when I find myself like, oh, wait, no, she can't do that because they, I'm like, nah, let's, I'm like, Serenity, all right, girl, I see you. Like I let her, I'm letting her be her and I'm like following her lead and learning who she is. I'm like, I realized that my role as a father is like, how do I, as a father who has the ability to take care of you in the financial and political ways, take the resources that I have access to that allows you the best framework to be yourself. Yes. I want to get into the, the topic of language in, in, in all aspects of life, especially around fatherhood and parenting. But I wanted to highlight something that you said, because um, I feel like it's very stereotypical that people say people have kids to then be like this better version of themselves or kind of like recreate themselves or right. do things that they couldn't do but you really truly have to understand that your child is their own person. And I was talking to my mom because for us, like spiritually is believed that the child chooses their parent. So like whenever I would be for my mom, she'd be like, well, you chose me. So you're going to have to figure it out. And I'd be like, damn, but they believe that the, the child picks the parent, but the parent is there to really just guide them through what they were naturally come to this earth to do. And right. there's like a, it's called your Ori is like a doppelganger that you have in heaven or above that knows your path. And is kind of like with you at all times, but right. the parent's role is to kind of like pull that together, mm -hmm. not to control it or manipulate it because ultimately like your destiny and whatever you were meant to be on this earth and why you came here is already set in stone. Right. So it's just the parent's job to just like provide the tools for you to get there, but not try to manipulate what ultimately like you were destined to do. And mm -hmm. that shit like blew my mind when we talked about it. Cause we talked about that very recently. And my niece was with me down in Florida for like a month. And it's so wild when you just see a child gravitate towards certain things, like, I understand there's a, a nurture aspect of it, but I truly believe a lot of it is like nature and on a spiritual level, because it's just like, how is this person just so inclined to be able to do these things? Like even thinking mm -hmm. about how you said that you naturally were like a caretaker, a caregiver, like, yes, that was put upon you, but you said like, oh, people just saw something in me. Like that could be a big right. part of just kind of like what you were put on here to do and, and mm -hmm. so many other things. So I think that that is like, so beautiful because I really want like now our generation to think with that mindset because if you could really just let a child like develop into the best person version of themselves like mm -hmm. we could have some dope ass people on this planet right yeah. and I kind of feel like other cultures do that and I think our culture and our community is definitely getting there like our generation I feel like is has a different sense of like awakeness, I guess, in terms of like feelings are important. Like you should be able to cry. And, and I, I, I taught at a private school that was predominantly right. white and I taught at a school that was predominantly black. And the way in which children were spoken to was very mm -hmm. different in terms of how teachers spoke to them and faculty right. and in terms of how their parents spoke to them. Right. Um, and you know, I liked how you brought up the point about it being like wrapped up in institutional racism and systematic racism. Um, 
how are you going to talk to your daughter about racism and what's happening today and oh, you know yeah. her growing up to be a black girl to a black woman well i'm well, the first thing is i'm not going to frame it as it's her issue like i'm not going to put the burden of the shit on her shoulders because i feel like that's what a lot of us were put like a lot of us who have black parents and parents of color where the burden of racism is on our shoulders it's our job to overcome a system that we're not responsible for and so once again you think about like and when you say other cultures like they don't treat their kids that way it's like are other cultures navigating the same institutional they're not like the, the same the same like policies against their bodies like it's particularly easy to tell your kids to have feelings when their feelings don't get them shot it's easy to tell your kids that they can be happy when they're when being happy doesn't get them jumped like it's it's particularly easy to tell your kids to be themselves when the culture is structured for that for it gives that those people space and i've done a lot of the things of like pathologizing like well white people get to do this and black people don't get to do that and like pathologizing the shit and not really looking at no this is institutional like there's literally like laws in place that like you know literally keep our bodies from regulate the movement of our bodies like literally can't go from one state to another without permission it's like and that permission is never you don't give yourself that permission right so when i talk to my daughter about this i'm talking to her about it the way like fucking tony morrison talks about race is like this is not your problem right like not giving my you know not giving shorty like the oh like you have to be twice as good if you want to get anywhere it's like you already are where you need to be anybody who makes you makes you their problem that's their problem so like framing and it's not so like also to your question about the racism i think it's really about making her aware of it but not what's the word like not limited by it and then what i mean by limited i mean limited by the belief that her burden is to prove to somebody else that she's worthy of being in this world. Yeah. And outside yeah. of the framework of race, even as a kid, like one of the things I've been thinking about a lot recently is like remember you as a kid and somebody didn't like you and when someone didn't like you or didn't want to be your friend, that shit would ruin your day. And if that's not you, I know that was me. Like why does this person want to be my friend? And what my moms and my parents and my brother or kids are like, "Oh, well, that person don't want to be your friend, fuck them." Like that was really more the attitude, like don't be their friend. Right. And I realized like what that did was it never allowed me to think about if I ever wanted to be their friend, right? Like it, like no one, it like, I'm just, cause when you're a kid, you just want to be liked. You don't care who likes you. You just like the more people that like you to marry you. Like, you know, Oh, I want to be your friend. You like, okay, we're friends. You don't think about, do I want, do I want, do I want to be your friend? Mm. It's so much of being a kid is just like literally soaking and receiving things. So it's so much of it is passively received. Like you one day just find yourself hanging out with people because y'all had on the same shirt and now you're spending the night at their house, but you might not have anything in common with them outside the fact that y'all just wore the same shirt on the same day. And no, you're, not so really, true. you're not really friends with them, but you don't really know what friendship is because you just have, you have a commonality and you think commonality is the basis of a friendship and it really isn't right. So even the framework in terms of talking to serenity is like, I'm, I'm excited for the moments when we have the conversation where she's like, so-and-so doesn't want to play with me. And instead of saying, oh, well, why doesn't so-and-so want to play with you? What, which, what, uh, what, that, what a person hears that question as is, what did you do wrong? 
Could you be doing something different? How can you change yourself to make yourself more likable to this other person? Right. Or the other answer is why don't well forget her play with somebody else. And what does that do? You're not now you're still thinking about the trauma of somebody not wanting to be your friend. And now, even after I told you what I told you, you being your own person, you want to go hard to make that person your friend because you're like, well, why don't you like me? And how can I make you like me? I.e., you know, followers, people who trying to fit in. So they're doing whatever they need to do to make the, you know, the, the popping person in the group like them. And then you end up being a cornball trying to get somebody else's esteem. Mm -hmm. And what I'm excited for is to ask her, do you want to be her friend? Just to change the, the relationship for a minute. It's like, you're so worried about this person not liking you. Do you like them? And just to have that, it is not even like to, to like take that conversation further, but to start from that point of like, oh shit, I don't even know. So what are you worried about? Like, why do you, why does it, why does it bother you that a person who you don't even know, who you, who you're not even sure yet want, like, how do I frame this? How do you, like, how are you, why are you bothered by somebody who doesn't want to be your friend when you don't even know if you want to be theirs? Right. And it's just to get in those moments of just sitting with the feeling as opposed to trying to do something to get rid of the feeling. Right. It's like, I don't like feeling rejected. So I'm either going to reject my rejection or I'm going to now try to change the rejection as opposed to let's sit in that feeling of rejection where you really reject it. Oh, maybe, maybe not. But what I want to always do for her and with her is create opportunities and conversations that allow her to get to know herself better. Because that really is to me, the thing that I see not happening, even with white kids. Like I teach, I went, I, I do like workshops at that look, like, I think it's called like this, it's the school on the Upper East Side. Um, it's a French school. And I think Madonna's kids go there. Lycée Francais. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> And when I, when I talk to those kids about their feelings, their parents don't care about their feelings anymore. Like, it's, they don't really, like, deep down, like, their, their kids, the kids will tell you their parents don't really know who they are. Right. Right? So it's like, they might have provided the environment for them to express their feelings, but it's like, what do you, the parents do in the real moment when the, when the kid has a real emotional dilemma and they need the parent to be present. A lot of these kids don't even see their parents. They're raised by like women that look like our mothers. Yep. So when it comes down, and this is the this is the wild thing, right? And I think like Nicole Dennis Benz Patsy talks to it, is like you have our mothers who, in order to survive, and I'm not saying anyone's mother here is a caretaker necessarily, but I'm just saying in the dynamic, right? We're getting emotionally deprived of a certain type of love and care. And our mothers, in order to, to provide the material things for our well-being, is providing that type of emotional labor for someone else's kids. So you have white kids getting the emotional response from our parents that we're not even getting. And the only reason why that parent can give that is because she knows that she's receiving something that allows her to pay for our material well-being. So you have this like really like, in, like really intertwined emotional state where it's like, your white kid is getting from my mother what I can't get from her. But the only reason why that my mother is being employed is because she's in a sense depriving me of something that your kid gets to get. And so what does that look like in a classroom? Like this white kid is just flourishing in their feelings because they have an outlet. And meanwhile, the black kid is deprived of those same emotions and stuff like that because no one's paying our mothers to make sure our mothers and our fathers like, no one's investing in our parents to make sure that we're, that the kids are okay. 
Right. Meanwhile, like other families from situations of means have the, 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 the economic means to provide a certain type of care that they themselves don't have to provide. And so it looks like the parent is the one doing that work. And that labor is the labor of a lot of black women, a lot of women from like the Philippines and like Asian countries and the West Indies. Like, and it's been something interesting. It's like, yo, why don't white people trust other white women with their kids? Like, well, you know how many times? Pay, they can't pay them what they're paying these women. But That's I don't know. Somebody had said something about that though in my school too. Like, do they find that it's going to, that it will create some tension because they're both white moms? And like, is it going to confuse the kid or is the kid going to start to like prioritize one woman in the house over their own mom or you something? You know what like I really that? think, but I won't say it. Say it. I hate when people do that. You should have just like kept talking. All right, be on mute then. But what I was thinking. They don't have emotional capacity because when you lack melanin, you lack (laughs) a lot. You sound like Dr. Hoop. She's a hotep now. When you were were talking, I thought about a few things because I've been thinking about, you know, one day I want to be a mom myself and I Mm -hmm. want my children to be able to be free. But in terms of safety, there's like a certain level of, I think, conversation and, you know, naivety that can't exist right. um, in order for my kids to be free. Um, right. And I love how you said you, would, you wouldn't put the burden on your daughter, but you'd still make sure that she's aware. Right. Um, yeah. And so it brings me to my next question really quick. You, I know, are a lover of books. Are there any books that you'd recommend to new fathers or any books you've read yourself? Mm, nah, I, I'm, to be honest, it's, I don't think it's the book. I think it's the practice of reading with your kid, reading to your kid. Like one of the dope things that Serenity does is she's, she grabs books and she brings them to me to read. Like, so, and she has her book. So she'll do this. She'll like sit in the pile and she'll like go for her favorite book and she'll grab it. But it's less about any book. It's like, even if, like when she was in, in infancy, I was reading like James Baldwin, like Toni Morrison. And, and really it wasn't about the, it was like, it's about the fact that like, what is she, what's happening in that moment? She's hearing my voice. Like you can't necessarily talk to a baby because the baby doesn't talk back. So the reading is a great way to establish a lot of the motor skills of like, okay, this is what a voice sounds like. And it allows me like, so I'm reading out loud to her. And it's like, it's the, it's really more the practice of, of reading because and the reason why I'm staying away from like picking books is simply because picking books is like the easier side because I know a lot of parents who buy the books for the kids. They don't read them to them or they might read like only at bedtime or like once or like, but they don't establish like a practice. Like one of the other beautiful things is like all my books are on the floor and Serenity from a young age has been knocking the books down and playing with them. Right. And I knew I grew up in a house where books were not something to be played with so much so that for a long time, I had a, a ver- like I never saw books as something that you could have. Like I never saw books as a source of joy growing up. It was something you did when you were serious. It's like, don't you don't mess this book up. So it was like, I never really liked books growing up because the experience around them was so like, it has to be when you go to the library, you can't laugh out loud. Right. Once again, this is another environment that polices your emotional reaction to something like you read, like, you know, Captain Underpants and you laugh and you're like, no laughing in the library. You're like, God damn, like, I can't even laugh. This shit is funny. And so (laughs) the fact that like, I let her rip my books 
I let her do these things now because it's like to have All that. Of us. No, because well, to have a tactile relationship with it now, she's going to grow into a, to a, she's going to grow in a relationship where books are natural in her life. Like, it's the difference. It's like what Jay-Z says when he says, go, go ahead, lean on that paint and blue, you own it. It's like, I want you to be comfortable with this shit. I don't want you to walk into a museum and feel like you can't touch anything. So now you're trying to shrink and erase yourself because you're uncomfortable in a space. I want you mm -hmm. to expand. I want you to enlarge. I want you to encounter. I want you to engage. I want you to know this world is yours. So rip the book up. That's a fucking book. Like, Don, you just got yourself a ticket to the commune. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the commune is. You're fine now. It's a hotel. <laughs> You're starting a whole new land, brother man. I think Not I'm going to have you on city man. planning. <laughs> Girl, funny. I'm so serious. I'm so dead ass. I'm like, yes, we should not police the library. Fuck out of here. Yeah. Just girl. Her brother. <laughs> I don't know what happened to you in the last. <laughs> it was the quarantine. Yo. Quarantine and YouTube videos. It's and just right, got you exactly. and YouTube coming out. Cheap, cheap. Have you ever heard of Behold the Pale Horse? There's some shit in there. <laughs> don't put cream in nutty coffee, all right? Hear you. So yeah, like that's really that's the that's the thing is like a lot of us are not allowed. A lot of us are just not taught from a young age to be comfortable in the world. Like you know, it's your room, but you can't play with your toys. Yeah, it's your room, but don't do this. It's your room, but it's like, damn, what the fuck can I like? What can you do? Like, so even you learn that like, yeah, this it's your painting, but you really can't. Don't touch the painting don't like the paint is dry like so like i walk her to the paintings i let her feel the acrylic like because i want her to know like you belong in this world so yes everything is yours to touch like touch it the fuck like that's the that to me is what 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 wealth is is the ability to know that a fucking person is more valuable than a book like that's what wealth is like it's not having money it's like yo like yeah she ripped the book it's the cover like are the pages intact yeah can you still read it yeah so what did she really just do right what did she really do can, you can buy the book again i can't replace this kid there's never going to be another one of her so it's like why would i ever make my kid feel like a book is worth more than my child like it's like that's never like that's not even the framework like that's that's just not the time i'm on at all and so it's like i know something that I will offer is I know my kid is going to get charged with, oh, she thinks she's white. I know my, like, I know people are going to charge my kid with all this shit, which is why going back to the thing of these people's opinions are not your responsibility nor your burden. So it's not your job to prove to them anything that they don't even care to know about because everything they're expressing in that moment re 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 reflects something that they don't get in their lives. Right? So you remember when fucking blue, had the Afro out and everybody and their mother was trying to, oh, they need to comb that baby's hair. And it's like, bro, you really think that between Jay-Z and Beyonce, they don't have somebody that can comb the baby's hair? Or do you think that they are establishing in this little girl the ability to be free in her, like the fact that they're at a place in, in wealth in the construct of capitalism where we know that her hair being nappy and quote unquote unkempt is not a reflection of neglect, mm. right? It's an expression of a pride for something that we are all taught from a young age to be ashamed of yes. simply because if you leave the house dirty or leave the house with your sneakers tattered or leave the house, you know, like I've been seeing them white kids dressed at the Met and I'm like, yo, that kid, I would read that kid as neglected. Like, 
<laughs> kids laying, like sitting on dirty train floors with their beat up converses, but no one's going to call ACS on that child. Right. No one sees that child as being neglected, but a black kid does the same thing and people want to know where the parents are and the mother's standing right there, right? So it's like, because of a lot of these internalized institutional things that play out in everyday interactions, yeah, people see a blue with her hair like that and they're like, oh my God, someone's going to take, like, that's not, they're, that's not, like the fact that they're at a place where they're not worried about how her hair looks, but they can establish like this little girl can lean on a Picasso to the point where like she knows that her, her life is worth more than the Picasso because you own the Picasso, right? You're not sitting there taking like physical care of yourself, right? And I know if you grew up in the hoods, especially everyone knew that kid or those kids in school who had all the new Jordans, all the new lawsuits, all the new shit, the new Game Boys. But when it came down to that homework though, and they had to read out loud though, it was a very different situation and that Sean John didn't look as good no more. Mm. I mean, right. these are facts. I'll never forget when I transferred to my white private school. I was like, there were three, two other black girls there. I took them straight to Fulton Street to Jimmy Jazz because I was like, y'all don't got no baby fat. Y'all don't got no rock aware. Right. What are y'all doing? I right. need to fix y'all. <laughs> And, right. were, and all the white kids were rich as fuck, just roaming around, looking crazy. Crusty. But then what was ill, right, is that they look crazy, but they be wearing shit that's above niggas pay grade. Like, we don't even right. that right. shirt is like, that's like a, that's, you know, that's some shit we never heard of. And we think is it's like, oh, that's $400 on a back, but we don't, it don't have the logos and labels on it. Mm-hmm. And that, like, all these pathologies that I'm, I'm so blessed to be able to, like, see the other side of. Like, oh, white people don't spend any money on clothes. It's like, nah. But they look do. at that man's watch, though. I bet you that yeah. shit. Like, look at the watch. You probably don't got no diamonds in it, but them like, like names. Oh, what's what's a Patek? Or like, oh, that's an eighty thousand dollar watch. And you, because he's not wearing Margiela, you think he's. They're not spending their money like black people. And it's like anytime I hear some a black person says what white people don't do, all it lets me know is you don't really know white people. Like, you don't really know the interior lives of white people. Like you've never actually got close enough to white people to see, oh shit, you are net more, you're dealing with the same shit as me with a better fucking credit score. Like it's- You learned it from them. That's not our shit. Right. So what, what you mean? What this girl? (laughs) (laughs) Capitalism. Capitalism. And I mean, like that, I think that's the biggest thing that I've took away from quarantine. Cause I love material things probably very, very much. But I've also started to understand that I don't, you don't need it. No, you don't. At all. You don't. And, I and just I think ordered that, a Gucci belt. There you go. I just ordered <laughs> some Gucci sunglasses. I, I, listen, I got Why didn't you Gucci. tell me? I would have bought you a I got a pair of Gucci loafers. What you get? What you get, G? No, I don't. I don't <laughs> like, buy like, things. Oh, <laughs> I don't buy things. No, you, I don't buy No, yeah, but your That's wealth is experience, lie. though. Yeah, like experiences. That's your wealth, He's though. He's also a liar because. Oh, I did just buy some Yeezys. <laughs> okay. Ew, Glenn. I don't know why. Here you go. Like, I don't even mine open, mine I don't even open the box because I'm like so ashamed. I'm that, like, that, I don't even need this you, thing. Do you hear yourself? If this ain't what? some shit, you bought a pair of Yeezys and you're so ashamed of the purchase that you won't open the box. Like, no, that's, okay. a, that's wealth shame, right there. A shame was a wrong word. It was just more like, 
I don't even have no place to wear these fucking shoes to right now. Why did I buy these? That you, you like, in the house. all your communicate, like, you know, like when you have, and this is what I learned about my rich friends is like everything they try to do to make themselves look like, and I'm not saying you're like, what I'm saying is a wealth <laughs> is a state of mind. Like it really is a state of mind. So like every time you're trying to rationalize why you're not, you only prove why you are. Right. It's mm -hmm. like the ability to be in a place in your life where you can buy something and then have an emotional reaction to it. And it's not just based in utilitarianism. Like it's not just a utilitarian thing. Like you bought a belt because you need, you, like you need it for a specific your pants purpose. Are falling down. Right. Like if it's outside of that, it's like, there's, that's a wealth. And it's like, when I talk about wealth, I'm not talking about material. Like it can articulate itself in the material, but what I'm talking about is your attitude toward things. Yes. Right. Like it's the attitude, like the fact that somebody, like, I remember, I never forget, like my Margellas, I had a white pair of patent leather Margellas and them shits were beat the fuck up. And 10 years ago, if I would have bought those Margellas, them shits would have never had a stain on them. I would have rarely wore them. I would have only wore them to things like to stunt with. And I remember right. getting off the train because at the time in my life, I'm like, yo, these are sneakers. Like they're meant to be walked in. I'm not about to sit here and spend like 30 minutes clean. Like I, like the wealth of my, that my time is more valuable than cleaning a pair of sneakers. I'm not doing it. Like I'm, I'm going to read books. I'm going to exactly. do other shit. And I got off the train and some dude was like, yo, what the fuck? Like he looked at my Margell like, yo, I'm just supposed to be clean. And before that would have been the most you know, mortifying. Men love to drag you on that. But, it, but before it would have been the most mortifying experience, but it's like, bro, like my life is more valuable than these shits on my feet. So yeah, like I fucks with the materialist shit, but it's like, I don't worship the shit like I used to. Like yes. I would like, yo, I give you an experience. I had a Bloomingdale's credit card when I was an undergrad at, at Blooming, I mean, in college. How ironic this shit was, right? There was times when I didn't have any money and I would travel all the way to Bloomingdale's to eat because I could use the credit card at the restaurants in Bloomingdale's. So there was one particular day where I was hungry, like hungry. There was nothing in the house and I'm looking for 50 cents, right? Two quarters to buy oodles and noodles, right? Meanwhile, in order to look for this, I'm moving wide three sneakers out the way. I'm moving like hundred dollars shit out the way to look for two quarters ebay my nigga poshmark it's, it's but it's, it's less of it once it, you mm. missed the point the point the point isn't about okay. the money. it's That's about true. the fact that i'm taking better care of these material things than i am right. myself Feeding yourself. Yeah. so i'm at the place where like now it's like yo like if somebody steps on my shoe it is not an emotional meltdown it's a fucking shoe like right like that's, and that's where the wealth is. It's not because it's not like I don't buy Gucci. Like I'm gonna buy them, but I still know they're shoes. Like okay. they're Gucci shoes, but they're still shoes. Mm -hmm. But when I'm treating my Gucci better than I'm treating myself, like that's the pop, that's where poverty is. No bueno. Like you sitting there, you taking your shit to the leather spot to get reupholstered, but you ain't get a checkup in five years. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's like, that's like real people do that shit. Like that's I remember in high school being dripped to, from head to toe but not having money for McDonald's or not having money for the train. But I'm standing at the turnstile like, yo, can you swipe me on? And of course, niggas is like, nigga, you need to be swiping me on. You better get out my face. Right. But when you're investing more in your presentation than your like actual being, it's like, that's poverty. Like, that's what I recognize poverty is, mm -hmm. is when you feel like you have to take better care of things than you do yourself. When things matter more to you than people.
And I realized that the true wealth is when you matter, you care more about people than things. And so when people come to the house and Serenity is like sitting there and she's like playing with like, you know, dog airing her book because it's her book because it's a book. Oh, you should take better care of your books. It's like, this is me. This is my care. Like I care about what's inside the book and what I get from the book, like the book itself. It's like, it's a, like it's material. And that's what I recognize, excuse me, wealth ass. So like when I was saying to you, Glenn, like, you know, being wealthy, I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about a mindset. And I know that having money gives you, it might give you a closer access to the mindset, but it doesn't guarantee that mindset. Cause I know a lot of niggas with money with bread, like bread, like two commas bread in their checking account. And their, 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 their mindset is poverty. Like, it's to the point where like they think I have more money than them because of the way I don't care about certain things that they lose their minds over. They're like, how can't you care about this? You must have money to buy it again. I'm like, bro, it's shoes. Like, it's really just shoes at the end of the day, but it's like, oh man. I, and it's like that person has all this money and they, and they can't wrap their heads around the fact that people matter more, that people are more valuable. And it's like that, that to me is not, that's not, that's not wealth. And so seeing that mindset and when I thought that money ensured that mindset, I pursued money. And then when I saw that money was not a guarantee of that mindset and that mindset could be achieved outside of that shit, it was like, I don't need, I just need the money I need to live to make, you know, I need to make the type of money I need to make to, to, to maintain the life that I want to live. And it's a one where people matter more than any, than, than things. I love that. Glenn, you want to read our, what would you do? Uh, what would you do? Okay, so we did an episode recently on um, the criminalization of black girls in schools. Yeah. And we got a letter. So we get listener letters from our listeners asking for advice. And we got a letter from a, a father. Um, and we all had different takes on it. And I think it'd be interesting if you would weigh on it as well. Okay. Um, so he says, hi, ladies. My name is Darius. I'm a black father to a beautiful black daughter. And I recently discovered your show. And it's really opened my eyes on so many levels. So thank you. I listened to your Black AF episode and the subject of your daughter twerking on Instagram or even around you. And I had an immediate adverse reaction to the thought naturally, but I had to work through it. My daughter does things that I call her out on as being quote unquote fast, even though she's only 10, but I want to protect her at all costs. Am I projecting onto her? The whole feminism bit is tripping me up and I don't know if I should just let her mother handle those conversations. What do y'all think? trying to be a better dad to raise phenomenal black girls like y'all. Mm. We answered this in a past mm -hmm. episode, so it's on you. Well, what's the, what's the question? Like Is I heard he, though. Should he be, you know, telling her stop twerking, stop being fast? Should he let his mother, his, the wife handle that? How would you um, go about that situation if Serenity is into a certain song and you see her twerking in her room? I'm gonna let her twerk. Like this, like I'm gonna let like I got all right. So this, um, there's so many layers to this issue itself. Like so, for me, like the phenomenal black dad thing, right? Like the good father, bad father dichotomy is like when some. For me personally, when someone's worried more about being a good father, it's like I tend to hear that as the way they want to be seen by other people who are reckoning like judging their fatherhood from afar and if twerking is the thing that for a person makes them a bad father like i think that there's a deeper there's deeper work needs to be done with the idea of what makes a good or bad father because like 
I'm not necessarily working in terms of a good father, bad father. I'm a father and I'm a father to a person who is going to do something they're going to do anyway. So I could tell her not to do it and she could just do it when I'm not around because I'm the type of kid. I know myself. My mother told me not to do a lot of shit that I did that she to this day won't ever know about. But what is the price of that type of relationship is that you don't know your child. You don't know who your kid is. And so it's like, for me, I would rather a real relationship with my, with Serenity, not my kid. Cause I like, even I catch myself, I want a relationship with Serenity. And so if Serenity is twerking, like I'll ask her where she got it from. I want to understand why she's doing it. And I want her to understand why she's doing it. I'm not, in, in the place that I'm in, like, it really is like, I've just seen the other forms of parenting. It looks like it, it looks like it works, but all it really is for I've seen is to impress other people. Like the, the optics of I'm a good parent and you only can be a good parent if you have bad parents in your mind. Like you can only be a good parent if you're thinking about what other parents aren't doing, which means I'm thinking more about what other people are doing and thinking about the relationship that's in front of me. So for me, it's like, if I see her doing that, it's like, okay, like, what you listening to? Well, you know, why are you dancing? Like, I want to understand this moment. Like, that's really what it is. Because it's like, as she gets older, and I think that's why it's very hard for a lot of parents, and I'm a product of it, for parents to accept their kids being, like, being at the ages where, they, where we can articulate ourselves. Because it's like, who is this kid? You didn't do this when you was in the house. It was like, well, I did when you weren't here. And two, just because I wasn't doing something in front of you doesn't mean that's not what I wanted to do, right? So it's like, that's why like there's people to this day that really don't have healthy relationships with their parents because there's not really a relationship, it's a dynamic, right? It's like, you know that your mother won't like you just do a certain thing. So it's like, even if this thing brings you joy, you're gonna keep this from her. And everyone else in the world knows probably what you do, but your moms or your pops. And, you're, and then you're like more nervous in, of being yourself in front of the people who should, who should, not should, but people you would like to think should know you first in this world. And they're typically the people that get to know you last. Like, and so for me, it's like, I'm not concerned personally with being a good father. I'm personally concerned with cultivating a relationship with serenity. And it's like, in that capacity, it's like, I don't care if people go, oh, see, that's why. And I know all the narratives, like, see, he, like those are the type of dudes that be like having strippers as daughters and they be like, and it's like, yo, like how many dudes, like ironically enough will say that and then they're absent in their own kids' lives. Like they're policing other people's kids and what they should be doing. But you ask their kid, yo, what's your, what's your kid's best friend's name? And they're like, they got to call their kid, right? They actually don't know anything about their child. So yeah, like your kid doesn't twerk, but can you tell me anything about who your kid is? like yeah for I mean, me that's that... yeah no, nah, i'm just saying like to me that's like that's like a fucking like that's a speeding ticket like that's like oh my bad you hear me <laughs> yeah no yeah, yeah. I, I feel no, like, I the, like the like the like twerking and all that shit like that's that like if that's where personally if that's where the if that's where the crisis with parenting is for that person i feel like they have a larger crisis altogether mm-hmm. yeah i love the way you said that you would ask a question in that moment. And I think it connects so beautifully to kind of the earlier parts of our conversation where we were talking about like looking at 
a, per, a child, a person as a whole being. And even actually throughout this conversation, there's been this emphasis on like being a person and valuing mm-hmm. humanity. And I mm-hmm. think that's what's coming up in this as well. Um, but this has been awesome. Dope. Hey, Don, thank, thank you for y'all. joining us. Thank y'all. Thank you. Our last for, segment. Thank you oh. for holding the space. Yeah, Black. our last segment. Shade. Okay, this is happening. So we typically have women um, very often on our on the show. So we have a segment called Black Girls Doing Shit. But this is gonna get flipped. So we have a black man doing shit okay. in the building. <laughs> Mr. Yadon, literary swag, is our black man doing shit. So thank you for all that you do. Thank you for joining us. Um, I think it's going to be great to have had your perspective for a lot of our listeners. Our our listenership leans female. So mm-hmm. I think your perspective is going to be much appreciated. And you're going to be wanting to have some babies. So I'm Yo, I've been thinking about that a lot. You're going to have your Dr. Such Umar babies. Great- Dr. Umar, baby. In the commune. In the commune, naked, free. Hair free, all of that. Yes. (laughs) But all right, this has been another episode of Black Girls Sexing. You can always hit us up with what would you do, questions, comments, concerns. I'm sorry, is the last segment? I'm doing my round. It's you. You're the black black man doing shit. The black dad doing shit. Oh, I'm sorry. My bad. Okay, my bad. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. One of these days when we are on television, when we are worldwide, we're going to give out trophies. Yeah, maybe it would have felt more like you needed to uh, yeah, like yeah, y'all didn't clap. <laughs> I, I thought like it, was, it wasn't a right. clap track. Let's do it again. Something try, that let me. No, 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 no. no Don't do it again. Gets it. I didn't <laughs> know. My bad. My bad. My bad. My bad. Maybe it's a man thing. Yeah. So I can assume. I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> okay. Burr, 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 burr. Black guy doing shit. Oh. Black guy doing shit. Burr, 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 burr. Oh. Call I the. Call the. Fuck. Damn it. I want to do. Yeah. Yes, yes. You already got one. There you go. Hold the trophy up. I'm going to let you do a 30 second um, uh, thank you speech. No, we're not. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> now, y'all, now y'all drag. All right. Okay, now. I'm... <laughs> You started it. I see what's happening here. Okay. You're done. I, we, go, we go back. We do. You know the vibes. I, 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 I'm not sure now because you, you told me about communes. And <laughs> you woke up during quarantine. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm sorry, G. Continue. No, I mean. I'm so ashamed of myself right now. <laughs> and I see you hanging your head, as you should. <laughs> All right, well, if you would like to reach out to us to send us a what would you do to give us feedback, comments, uh, email us at hello at Black Girls Sexing or go to our Instagram at Black Girls Sexing. Thank you for listening to another episode. And thank you to our guest, Yadon Israel. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Bye.